This is Copfather, and I'm Craig Rommel. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Mike Artfield. Let's go further back, uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the Zodiac Killer. He was uh, you know, obviously bragging. He started writing the media, different newspapers, trying to give out clues, really going after the police uh, for not catching him. How many actually get into that? How many, like, he, he he's probably the most famous one, and he still hasn't been caught to this day. How many of them actually go that far to communicate with the media or with the police and kind of tease everybody? Um, this correspondence, this taunting correspondence and letter writing with the media and police seems to have been limited largely to sort of 60s through the 80s. So, I mean, so you've got the Zodiac. You've got them. There's, a, there's actually a Zodiac copycat in the 90s who also wrote in New York, who also wrote letters using that, that thing. So uh, he, he was just a disorganized. I'm not even sure what his, what his issue was, but he's using a zip gun and just basically attacking people at random. But he, he's writing the same letter sort of in the same hand using ciphers. was caught pretty quickly, fortunately. So you've got the Zodiac. You've got, uh, you know, Berkowitz in New York writing. Son know, of Sam? Letters. Yeah. That's the Son of you've Sam, got right? Dennis Rader, uh, the BTK, mm-hmm. who is, again, communicating. And that's what got him caught was. He made the mistake of sending a, a diskette, if you remember those. Yep. And they were able to retrieve the metadata from that that sort of narrowed the, the, the suspect list. So you don't see much of it anymore, in part, I think, because of improvements in technology. Yep. And I think that breed of, of offender, you know, the publicity-seeking, really delusional type of, uh, again, corresponding grandiose killer, yep. I think established this iconography and I think um, thought of serial killers as, again, these larger than like supervillains who do this type of stuff when in reality it's limited to a, a handful of, uh, of killers. Um, it's, I, I can that's think an, of it. That's I, another I, level though, right? Yeah. In fact, I, I, I've, I've written uh, about this. So a lesser known serial killer, Albert Fish, known as the werewolf of Wisteria, early 19th century U.S., he wrote actually this is so sexual sadist again um he wrote to the victims of his families taunting them not the media and whether it's doing that or writing to the media and the police there is actually a separate paraphilia called coprographia where there is uh sexual excitement and sort of reliving the crime by by diarizing or writing about it and especially the thought of writing something that then gets delivered and read and fantasizing about the torment against sadism uh, and fear that you're causing in the reader. So it's pretty rare. So, I mean, when we see serial murder accompanied by that, and we're talking among the rarest of the rare. So this is not contrary to, I think, popular misconception, something that's habitually done by, by killers. And that's why the ones that do this tend to be sort of household names. Through your background and expertise and studies and investigations, is there is there an area in Canada that, that you just found that there's just more serial killers than anywhere else? Just anecdotally, because again, we don't necessarily have all the numbers. And this corresponds with what we see in the U.S., which is, uh, and you can visualize this on murderdata.org. If you search by cases, it pulls up a U.S. map and you'll see pins in the map where yep. suspected serial killers are. And the coasts, light up, particularly the West Coast. And we see that again in, in Canada and in the U.S., the Pacific Northwest area of the U.S. and then in the... the yeah, the Green, Ri- Green River was in uh, Washington, right? Yeah, Gary Ridgeway. And so, I mean, in Canada, you've got then Highway of Tears, you've got Picton, 
you've got a, a couple of other sort of uh, Clifford Olson. You've got this, there's something about that region and it's thought to largely be climate based. I mean, nomadic mm. people are drawn there because, I mean, it's never too cold. It's never too hot. You know, it's not Nevada, Arizona, uh, but it's not, you know, Quebec City. It lends itself sort of for predators, sort of year round trolling and hunting at the same time is appealing to people who have high risk lifestyles and are sort of nomadic and on the margins because again, you can be outside. Uh, year round so it's not like you're going to freeze to death so those people are drawn there or stay there and are or, and in that are trapped in that lifestyle and motivated offenders know that and will often if they don't like pick them exclusively target that group will certainly begin likely with that group before then moving to um people who are they consider sort of what we call their um, preferred victim someone usually in their peer group or a specific person they've been talking uh what about a province of ontario is there something in the water here? The population is, and the, the existing sort of homicide rate is, is there. But again, we don't know. Most of this is, is anecdotal. I, I've tried to build a murder accountability project in Canada. I got a grant a few years ago to build a database just like the one we have in the U.S. And I faced nothing but resistance at all levels to just turning over unsolved data, not names. So let me, ask, let me stop you there. Why would that be? Why would you get resistance on something as important as that? the same excuse why nothing operates properly in Canada, which is privacy. So believe it or not, the argument made consistently was, well, even if you just publish and make searchable uh, a case by year and age of the victim, someone could then take the next step and identify who that victim was and that dead person's privacy interests trump any opportunity to catch their killer. Uh, and our success in the U.S. and our dialogue with victims there and advocacy for victims there. I mean, we're, we're on the verge of, of helping. We've been lobbying for and on the, on the verge of sort of allowing a new piece of legislation of victims' families' rights back to be established. And in, in Canada, you're a cop long enough where victims are, are treated like second-class citizens. No, that's terrible. Well, that's just, actually, it's disgusting. And even worse, when it comes to murders, I mean, we're not talking about somebody that had their house broken into, victims and all that. We're talking about some of the most horrific crimes you can imagine. I totally get it. Red tape, bureaucratic BS. That's why nothing gets accomplished here. That's why, whether it be vaccines or, or you know, the 401 has been expanded, has been under continuous construction for 15 years. I mean, there's no deterrent to, to just not doing your job. Especially as something yeah. as important as this, for, for the victims. It's hard to not be cynical after so many years on the job, but then you're, you're reminded that your cynicism is well-founded when you encounter, again, roadblocks like this. It will be interesting to see, though, in the U.S., after several years of a largely stable homicide rate, or in many other cities, declining homicide rate, I predicted this back in March 2020, the lockdowns and the inequitable sort of application of, of lockdowns and shaming and fear-mongering and everything that's gone on it's probably the most dangerous social experiment carried out in, of the modern age and i has led to a predictable surge like 50 years high in, in homicides in the u.s because it's just the social unrest and, and and i mentioned this back back then in that i understand lockdowns to some degree are necessary but look at the studies on prison populations and what they call administrative segregation of solitary confinement studies have repeatedly shown 
15 days is the maximum you can isolate an offender, an inmate, who's already incarcerated. So right. they, they already don't have all their, their privileges. So, but 15 days in isolation is the absolute maximum before there begins to be a progressive decline and deterioration in that person's behavior where they become a danger to themselves and other inmates in correction work. Well, how about 15 months on an entire population who have gone from having their, their liberties and civil liberties to, to none, essentially? And what did you think was going to happen? I mean, it was the you could not predict what the, the, the median or mean effect of that is going to be on the average population. If we know that 15 days for someone who's already institutionalized, anything after that becomes progressively dangerous. So you lock these people up and then you, you turn them loose. What did, what did they think was going to happen? We're entering a time sort of criminologically and just economically and, and, and yeah. socially, culturally, where everything's going to be defined pre-March 2020 and post-March 2020. I mean, it really is the crash of 1929. It really is sort of going to be a globally defining line in the sand where, I mean, we're going to have to throw out a lot of what we thought we knew about offenders because many of them are, are, are going to have been generated by by the pandemic and the, and the measures that were, that were taken. And, you know, I want to uh, just quickly mention, obviously, the victims on this. The vast majority are women, Aboriginal women, that doesn't get talked about enough. I know they're trying to make changes in that. You mentioned a couple of cases where couples were murdered and all that, but the vast majority are women. That's a big problem we have, and that's that's always been the case, right? The majority of homicide victims, period, are, are men, but certainly the victims of sexual homicides, and by extension, serial homicides and cold cases, yes, are, are women, and, and frequently women from marginalized communities. Yeah. And that's basically the basis for our, our algorithm that, that we use at the Murder Accountability Project is that we use basically female victims and strangulation as sort of the, the benchmark for, for looking for unsolved cases that are likely linked because the vast majority of female victims of homicide are victims of intimate partner violence and the offender is caught relatively quickly. We also know serial killers prefer strangulation either as the cause of death or as a component of their MO. So when you see large clusters of women being killed by someone other than their intimate partner and strangled and they're unsolved, and they often, again, come from visible minority groups, the presumption has to be that these are part of a series until proven another one. Until you know, our software started tracking these in many cities, no one, it's not just linkage blindness. And in terms of two separate detectives investigating these crimes, not knowing that they're part of the same series, no one was investigating them, period, including, like I said, 51 in Chicago, where the victims are overwhelmingly uh, Hispanic uh, or black. And in the case of the Hispanics, they're left naked uh, in a public place. In the case of the black victims, are set on fire. 51 wow. over wow. a period of about 15 days. Brutal. No one, Brutal. No one knew. Mike, talk about your course you uh, teach at Western University. And I think you have another one starting up. What was the background behind that? How did you start it up? And how uh, how's that going? So I've got a number of courses, obviously, on, on crime, but I mean, sort of the, the cornerstone of, of my research portfolio there is, and then it makes its way into my courses, is my Cold Case Society, which is a, an unsolved crimes think tank comprised of students, other faculty, uh, and other experts who we sort of bring in on a, a as-needed basis. And we look, again, often crimes that we've identified through the Murder Accountability Project dat database that no one else is investigating. And we basically come at it from a completely new, 
unbiased perspective, applying technologies, including theoretical methods uh, that have never been applied to the case. And, and see where so you take it. an actual cold case. Yep. This so, is at Western University. Then the students start investigating it. Is that's that right. Fair? I mean, they're not doing conventional. They're not doing stakeouts or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're not stepping on police. Those they're doing behind the scenes analytics and again theoretical sort of approaches to the investigation. And I'll give you an example. As part of our work, I got in touch with a really great Pennsylvania State Trooper who basically has that same job that was created actually after I founded the society. And obviously, they have no direct link with each other. But he's also a member of the VDOC Society, which is sort of like my cold case society based in Philadelphia. So this State Trooper, uh, Andrew Martin is his name, his job is basically, this is like a dream job. He looks at cases from across the state all decade and just brainstorms new ideas about how to approach them. And they recently solved one where a sock was found during a search warrant being executed on a suspect's house. And using some photographic enhancement through a university professor at Temple University, they were able to, using new digital technology, identify this sock as having unique characteristics with the other sock that was found on the victim's body. So this guy was arrested and actually um, his trial was delayed due to COVID and died in custody, not of COVID. So this is like a 25-year-old case solved just by, you know, trying something trying something new, seeing if it flies, what do you have to lose? Right. So we're sort of doing that here. And now that I'm in touch with him, I mean, this is, I'm hoping that uh, we can continue sort of bouncing ideas off each other and, and helping each other out. But Incredible. we need more of these startups looking at, at these cases. And with the surge in interest in true crime, I mean, there's there's legions of people out there also willing to help. And I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, writing stuff online and, and weighing in with, you know, some not the best information or motives, but there's a lot of people doing meaningful work on some of these forums. And this is how, as you know, bro, cases get solved. I mean, yeah. um, you have to engage the public. And if true crime, good or bad, is a mechanism for, for you know, keeping these cases out there and getting people talking again, then, then great. This is why I'm an, an advocate for um, anniversary stories in the media. Like, So if it's been 15 years since a case has gone cold, talk about that. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a huge case, but an alliance 15 years ago that led someone to keep their mouth shut may have broken down over the you know, the intervening years, and that person may now be willing to come forward and just need that nudge, like Sam Little, right? hundred some murders, he's only in custody for two, no one ever asked him. As soon as someone asked, he's prepared to, prepared to talk. You don't know if you don't trust. Mike, you're a fascinating guy. I'm always impressed, and you're doing such a good thing here. You have a new podcast coming up, I guess, later in the month? Yeah, probably it will drop in a couple months by the time we get the first few episodes done, Suspect Zero, so sort of like couple of the cases I've talked about today, these, the, the slant of, of the show. So it's a true crime high school teacher in uh, Hackensack, New Jersey, and I. The suspect zero is either cases, lesser known cold cases where we sort of start putting together a suspect profile or solved cases that have zero public footprint. So cases and mostly serial offender cases that you've never heard of. So I'll throw one out right now. It's mm-hmm. Mike DeBartabella. I guarantee you. Say the name again. Piece, Sorry. Mike DeBartabella. So this guy, sort of like Israel Keys, we don't know how many people he's killed. 
we know of, of several sexual assaults, but this guy's main crime was he's one of the most prolific lone wolf counterfeiters in U.S. history. He's sort of like from the movie Catch Me If You Can. Just a nomadic uh, swindler. But the Secret Service got onto this guy because his counterfeits were so good and he became a priority for them. So they raided a storage unit that they thought was his printing press that he was using the storage unit to make the bills. And they go in and there's basically trophies and souvenirs, including bloody clothing and, and, and you know, women's items from dozens, probably hundreds of victims. So they go to the FBI and they say, like, we don't, we've got a suspect and no, but no victims. And we've got this lair where he kept either victims alive for a while or just kept, kept the, the trophies. So, and he, he wouldn't talk. So we've got, people are still tracing this guy's movements and trying to compare them to missing people uh, or found remains or, or what have you. But I mean, here's a guy again, operating in the dark for decades. And just by chance, they find this, this place, this hidey hole. And otherwise, we wouldn't even be talking about them. So, I mean, here's a case where, and we'll probably take this on with my cold case society, we need to start looking, using resources like murder accountability projects, look for cases that correspond with uh, where he was living. Incredible. And we don't even know about it. Nobody seems no. to. Wow. Well, Mike, again, fascinating stuff. Uh, his new podcast is going to be Suspect Zero. Look him up, michaelartfield.com. Just incredible stuff, and I really appreciate you, my friend, for coming on and all the good work you're doing. Keep it going. You bet, buddy. Thanks, everybody. Take That's Cop Father for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.